the Jewish views on the Balfour Declaration. As the Palestinian Authority claims it will sue the British government, we remind ourselves just how important a document it was for Israel. My dear ones, Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg talks about his latest book and how the young Jew in your life could find friendship thanks to Sinai Primary School's buddy benches. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. An internet troll is facing jail for a second time after making anti-Semitic death threats to the Labour MP for Liverpool Wavetree, Luciana Berger. John Nimmo, who's 28 and from South Shields, told her she was Jewish scum. In another message, there was a picture of a large knife and he told her she would get it like Joe Cox. It was sent just three weeks after Miss Cox, who was also a Labour MP, was murdered. Miss Berger said the messages left her in a state of huge distress. Nimmo had previously been jailed for two months in 2014 for sending abusive messages to two other women. The Palestinian Authority claims it will sue the British government for the 1917 Balfour Declaration. It says this made Britain responsible for what it called all Israeli crimes and the catastrophe which befell the Palestinian people. The Palestinian Foreign Minister Riyad al-Maliki made his announcement to Arab leaders in Mauritania at the annual meeting of the Arab League. It comes as Jewish communities around the world prepare to celebrate 100 years since Britain's commitment to a Jewish homeland. In the United States, anti-Israel protesters set an Israeli flag on fire and shouted long live the Intifada outside the Democratic Party's national convention. A video showed a woman dressed in black placing the flag on a fire outside the event in Philadelphia. Protesters also waved Palestinian flags and burned pro-Bernie Sanders flyers. Mr Sanders, the Vermont senator who is Jewish, has conceded to Hillary Clinton as the Democratic candidate for president. Golders Green Station was closed for an hour earlier this week and the surrounding area cordoned off after reports of a suspicious abandoned car. Commuters and pedestrians filled the streets while police tried to locate the owner of the vehicle. The car was later deemed to be non-suspicious and the security cordon was lifted. And finally, two new brightly coloured benches have been unveiled at Sinai Jewish Primary School, which it's hoped will help children make friends. The so-called buddy benches were designed by the children themselves and they'll be ready for use in September. The secretary of the school's Parents and Staff Association said children who feel sad or alone will be encouraged to sit and make new friends. And we'll be finding out more about the buddy benches later in the show. That's the news. Over on the subs bench this week is Andrew with the sport. The story of my life, Viv. Thank you very much indeed. One of six new teams entering the Jewish Football League next season has been told by the London Football Association they can't call themselves Tottenham Chutzpah due to it being offensive. The team played under the same name four years ago, but manager Brandon Ham said they researched the word on Google and apparently didn't like what they saw. Hapa El Beersheba grounded out an impressive 0-0 draw against Olympiakos on Wednesday night in the first leg of their Champions League third round qualifier. The stalemate means the Israeli champions need a win in next week's return home leg to reach the playoff tie. And finally, Israel has a first ever team taking part in the Bruin Dolphin Commodore Cup, one of the most prestigious events for amateur yachtsmen. Team captain Omer Brand said, I'm not sure we can win it, but believe we can aim for a podium position. We're not coming to play. Remember, 
You can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look at The Jewish News. I'm Phil Dave, and joining me in the studio to go through it is Features Editor Fran Wolfish and Foreign Editor Stephen Orezchuk. Welcome to you both. Stephen, let's start off, as we always do, with the front page and a rather catchy headline. You wait 99 years and then a bus comes along. I loved the headline. It was lighthearted and it deserved to be so. The story is takes a little uh, seeing is believing type of thing. The Palestinian foreign minister this week on Monday went along to a meeting in Mauritania, spoke to the Arab leaders of the Arab League and asked for help in suing the British government for the 1917 Balfour Declaration, which was uh, a letter written to Lord Rothschild explaining the foreign minister at the time his uh, commitment to a Jewish homeland. The Palestinians say that this was the root of all the problems and therefore this makes London responsible for all, quote, Israeli crimes since 1948. So they're going to sue Britain, it looks like, and going to sue it just before the 100th anniversary of the letter. Everyone's rubbished it. Everyone said this is ridiculous. It's symbolism. No chance of success. Smalkin Rifkin spoke to us, former foreign secretary and legal background himself, said there's no chance of this ever working, uh, said it's purely political, symbolic. And the other thing you see I don't understand with all of this, Fran, is that my understanding, and I don't have a great understanding of British law, unfortunately, but I was under the impression that a case could only go so far in history when you actually are legally allowed to do anything about it anyway. I mean, mind you, having said that, I appreciate that maybe the Palestinians view law in a slightly different way than we do here in Britain. But at the same time, if it's going to be taken seriously, I would have thought it would have had to have been implemented a bit sooner than 100 years. If you think about it, if this did have any legal standing at all, imagine what could happen all over the world. You could have native... Indians suing America, essentially, for taking their land. I mean, I know there have been cases of that sort, but they could technically try and claim it back. Are we going to sue the French for the Norman invasion? I mean, how far do you want to to take it back in history? I think, you know, it, it's, to me, obviously, it just strikes me as a little bit ludicrous. But there is a feeling, I guess, that they're doing it more as a kind of political move rather than in any hope that they'll actually get anywhere with it legally. Well, it is highly doubtful. So let's see what happens. Now, the National Union of Students has obviously been in the news quite a bit in recent weeks, not least of all because of some of the comments made by their current president. Well, NUS is now back in the news again. Why? NUS has, as as I think everyone knows, a new president who has some very strong anti-Israel views. So it's staying in the Jewish news, principally for that reason, I think. Lots of Jewish students are concerned about the direction of the organization. The latest hoo-ha revolves around the Jewish representative on the anti-racism, anti-fascism committee. Now, in February, if we go back a stage, in February, uh, the NUS national executive decided that there would no longer be a Jewish representative and that Jewish concerns would be voiced 
amongst other ethnic minorities' concerns. And so there would no longer be one specific person to voice Jewish students' concerns. There was a big reaction uh, that last week was changed, and they said, okay, there is going to be a Jewish representative, but that person will be chosen by the 40-member NEC, the National Executive Committee, of which I think only three or four are Jewish. Again, cue the big reaction from the Jewish student community. We want to choose our own person. It should be it should be us making that choice and election. Cue the news this week when the NUS finally confirmed what it meant in, in so many terms when Malia Boatia, the president, said it will be self-identifying caucuses who will choose the Jewish representative. In the newsroom, we were all scratching our heads. What does that mean? Okay, we think that means Jewish students will choose the Jewish representative. But then there was questions around who are these self-identifying caucuses? Are, there, are they the thousands of Jewish students on campus in the UK or who are they? And it, anyway, it turns out finally that the self-identifying caucus are the three or four Jewish representatives on the 40-member NEC. So it's gone from no Jewish representative to, yes, Jewish representative, but non-Jews can choose them, to, yes, Jewish representative, and three or four Jewish members of the NEC can choose them. Now, UJS, the Union of Jewish Students, are saying, hang on a minute, shouldn't this be for all Jews to choose? We want to say, and they've been sidelined. And so the saga continues, and I'm sure it'll unfold as the weeks go on. Now, from the NUS on to Jewish Olympians. Headline reads, not even their medals could save them. Fran. We've taken an extract from a very interesting book, Who Betrayed the Jews by Agnes Greenwald Speer. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, Don't start that again. Oh, oh, I know. I always get these, don't I? Anyway, it's a very interesting chapter within the book, which is solely on the Jewish sporting heroes who, you know, they got glory for their country and then effectively were treated just like any other Jews during the Holocaust. And sadly, a lot of them met, a, you know, a terrible fate. Among the um, examples that we have here, we have you know, Dutch gymnasts and fencers and very, you know, sort of talented people. But one striking example, actually, is of a man named Wolfgang Fersner, who was actually the first Jewish victim. I think we can say that he was actually a Nazi official who ran the 1936 games in Berlin. But it was actually discovered in the duration of the Olympics that he was a Mischling. And he, having been branded as such, he was effectively ruined. His wife threatened to leave him. And very sadly, knowing that, you know, a bad fate awaited him, he committed suicide, having put the games together. As soon as they ended, he shot himself. So that's quite a poignant story. There's also another very sort of heartbreaking story of a Hungarian gold medal winner, Attila Petschauer, who was taken off to... A labor camp in the Ukraine and he was treated really terribly he was made to basically climb a tree he was told to crow like a rooster and then he was sprayed with cold water which eventually froze and he fell off the tree and died shortly afterwards I mean it's a terrible end and these these men and women you know they they fought for their country in a different way they weren't soldiers but they were Olympians they were gold medal winners they had participated in sport and they had got glory for their country so well it also seems that as we're on the cusp of rio 2016 mm. that to look back and see that not all 
Olympic athletes were treated with the admiration and the respect that they deserved. It is quite a a horrid and poignant reminder, I guess. So, And that features on what page, sorry? And that's on page 24. Well, just finally, Mary Dacker and Zola Budd rather famously collided in years gone by. So why are they in the news again? Yeah, another sports story in the run-up to Rio. It's a fascinating film, The Fool, which airs on Sky Atlantic on Friday and it's also going to be released in cinemas throughout the UK. The film has been put together by a Jewish producer, John Batsek, and a Jewish director, Daniel Gordon. And together they've basically told the story of Mary Decker, an American middle distance runner and Zola Budd who's from South Africa and famously ran barefoot and recall the events of 1984 in Los Angeles when the pair basically collided together on the track it was for those people who remember it it made quite a few headlines around the world effectively this incident sort of put both of these athletes who were on the the cusp of achieving greatness in their careers ended their careers altogether and now more than 30 years later still with this incident overshadowing them they have been brought together again and it's a very poignant and thought-provoking and it was a bit of a tearjerker I'd say actually seeing these two come back together again and you find out actually in other circumstances these two could have been not just great rivals but great friends they really had quite a lot in common all right well thank you very much indeed That's all we've got time for, for a look through the paper for this week. So thank you very much to Fran Wolfish and Stephen Oreschuk. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you've just been hearing, the Palestinian Authority claims that it will sue the British government for the 1917 Balfour Declaration. It says that made Britain responsible for what it called all Israeli crimes, and the catastrophe which befell the Palestinian people. To remind us why the Balfour Declaration was and still is such an important document for the state of Israel's mere existence, Clive Roslin has been speaking to Professor Geoffrey Alderman. Geoffrey Alderman, it does seem an extraordinary way that the Palestinians are behaving over the Balfour Declaration, but first of all, can I ask you, what was the Balfour Declaration for those people who don't know? The Balfour Declaration was a letter written by the then Foreign Secretary in the Lloyd George wartime government during the First World War. It was written, typed on the dated the 2nd of November 1917, and it was a letter from Arthur Balfour, the Foreign Secretary, who had previously, before the war, been a Prime Minister, to Lord Rothschild, Walter Rothschild the second Baron Rothschild. And it's interesting, I have a copy of the letter in front of me as I'm speaking to you. It's a letter in which Balfour says at the end, I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. That's very strange. So here we have the Foreign Secretary writing to Lord Rothschild, who incidentally was not a Zionist, saying, can you bring the contents of this letter to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. And we might ask, well, why didn't Balfour write directly to the English Zionist Federation? We can answer that later on. In this very short one-page letter, and I'm quoting, Balfour says, Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government 
the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations which has been submitted to us and approved by the cabinet. Quote, His Majesty's government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation, yours, Arthur James Balfour. The entire Balfour Declaration. It was approved by the Lloyd George government and transmitted to the wealthiest Jew in the country, Walter, second Baron Rothschild, by the Foreign Secretary. It is quite an extraordinary thing. Now, I've known about the Balfour Declaration myself for a very long time, but I never realised that those were the actual words. And it is quite extraordinary that at that time, in 1917, that the British government or the British Foreign Secretary was actually doing that. It does seem odd, doesn't it? Well, there is, of course, a history behind this extraordinary one-page letter. Many theories have been put forward as to why the Lloyd George government authorised this declaration. Was it to bring America into the war? Well, it couldn't have been because by the 2nd of November 1917, America was already in the war. Was it to make sure that the Bolshevik government or the presumed Bolshevik government in Russia, and we should point out at this point that the Bolshevik Revolution, although we in the West call it the October Revolution, in fact, because of the difference in Russian and Western calendars, didn't take place till later in the month of November. So on the 2nd of November, we're still in the dying days of the Kerensky liberal government in Russia that had overthrown the Tsar in March 1917. Was the Balfour Declaration a way of influencing Russo-Jewish opinion to remain in the war against Kaiser's Germany or, as the Bolsheviks did, pull out. Another theory is that this was somehow a thank you for the industrial chemist Chaim Weizmann, who was a lecturer in chemistry at Manchester University, a thank you for him for having made a tremendous help towards the so-called Shells crisis in the First World War, the manufacture of explosives, by discovering a method from distilling a central ingredient of explosive out of apples. The truth of the matter is that it was for none of these reasons. The truth of the matter is that Arthur James Balfour, who had been Prime Minister 1902 to 1905 and was now Foreign Secretary, was a Christian mystic, along with his brother Gerald, who was an, an MP for a Jewish area of Leeds. The Balfour brothers were Christian mystics and they saw this as an opportunity to take part, to play a part in the fulfilment of biblical prophecy. That is why Balfour persuaded his colleagues, with one exception, we can come to him in, in a moment, to authorise the approval of this declaration. I find that absolutely fascinating. So that was the whole reason for it. And yet now, now here in the present, the Palestinians are saying we're going to take a 
case against the British government for something that they actually didn't do. It was Balfour's deep Christian belief that did it. It was Balfour's Christian beliefs. And we should add to this, it was also Lloyd George's Christian beliefs. Now, anyone who knows anything about Lloyd George knows that he was an amoral person, a great womanizer. You would hardly call him a Christian. On the other hand, David Lloyd George, the Welsh-speaking Prime Minister, knew his Bible from beginning to end and from the end to the beginning. And in that sense, he was a Philo-Semite and also a Christian Zionist. I wonder if I can point out two particular features of the Balfour Declaration. Yeah, please do. Firstly, it said that the government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. And Palestine was a much bigger place in those days. It was a geographical expression. So this wasn't the British government saying we want the Jewish national home to be in the whole of Palestine. It was a national home in Palestine. Can I just ask you a question? And in some ways, then, the Palestinians have got a point. So what they're really saying is, you have Israel, but give us back that part of Israel which you've taken, which you've occupied. Well, we need to remember this letter was written on the 2nd of November 1917, and a year or so later, the Great War, the First World War, ended. And in the aftermath of the end to that terribly bloody conflict, there was a peace conference and the League of Nations was set up. The geographical area of the Palestine mandate given to Britain by the League of Nations included a lot of territory east of the Jordan River as well as west of it. And one of the things that Winston Churchill did when he was colonial secretary in 1921 was to tell the Jews you are forbidden from settling in that part of the Mandate Palestine that lies east of the Jordan River. This subsequently became Transjordan and is now the Kingdom of Jordan. So the Jews were not given the whole of Palestine, were they? They were only given permission to settle in designated areas. They had to pay for the land west of the Jordan River, not in Palestine, east of the Jordan River. And yet it didn't actually happen until the 1940s, after the Second World War, the State of Israel, I mean. Yes, well, the Muslim world, and I repeat this deliberately, the Muslim world was very unhappy with this declaration. The final phrase says, it being clearly understood that nothing should be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. And that phrase was put in there at the instigation of the only Jewish member of Lloyd George's government, Edwin Montague, who was Secretary of State for India. Edwin Montague was a son of Lord Swathling, Samuel Montague, the Yiddish speaker, very, very, very orthodox Jew, founder of the Federation of Synagogues. Edwin Montague, as Secretary of State for India, tried to sabotage the Balfour Declaration for a number of reasons, one of which was that he feared its impact on the Muslim world. And of course, as Secretary of State for India, he had a responsibility in that regard. And the final phrase of the Balfour Declaration, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country, also reflects Edwin Montague's input. Edwin Montague, the only Jewish member of the Lloyd George government cabinet, 
objected to the Balfour Declaration because it conferred nationhood on the Jews. Montague argued feverishly with David Lloyd George. He said, we've been trying for centuries to get out of the ghetto. Now you want us to put it back in. And so that final phrase was put in also at Montague's instigation. Professor Geoffrey Alderman talking to Clive Roslin there about the history and the relevance of the Balfour Declaration. This in light of the news that the PA wants to sue the British government over its creation. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be back for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by journalist and author Emma Klein and a Hoover Cohen from the New End Theatre Beyond. They'll be discussing what you've just been hearing about the PA threatening to sue the British government over the Balfour Declaration. Plus, Kate Fulton will be speaking to Melanie Priestley, who will be telling us about Sinai Primary School's new Buddy Benches Friendship Project. But first, Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg is no stranger to this programme. He's done many a rabbinic thought for us, including the one you'll hear later. But did you know he's also a formidable author as well? His latest book is called My Dear Ones, One Family and the Final Solution. I'm not going to give too much away as we're about to hear from Rabbi Wittenberg himself, but it is a gripping story about his family's struggle during the Nazi era. I have to tell you that having gone to his house to do this interview, I can honestly say that I have never seen so many books in one place that wasn't a library. So with that in mind, I started by asking Rabbi Wittenberg just what do books mean to him? Books mean a lot to me and to all the family. My wife is executive director of the Society of Authors. All the children love reading. And my son said, you know, it wasn't wallpaper. It was books that lined the walls of the house when he was growing up, which I'm delighted about. I studied English. I've always had a love for literature, wider European and universal literature, and of course, Jewish literature. And interestingly, over the last many years now, I found myself drawn to history, biography, autobiography, as much of my favourite reading. So your particular preference towards a certain type of literature, would you say, has changed then over the years? It's changed because when I was at university reading English, I read a lot of fiction. I've always loved poetry. I I still love poetry. But I've moved, I, I read much less fiction and much, much more history now than I used to. Would you say that being a rabbi gives you a certain, I suppose I want to say a different view on the written word as maybe some others because obviously it's quite a great part of being a rabbi is that you have to sort of examine the world in great depths and and read every word maybe not at surface value but maybe sort of find the meaning behind it and therefore do you think that that gives you a bit of an advantage to be able to put pen to paper yourself advantage that's hard to say but it's certainly a bit a huge influence i think of george steiner's comment my homeland the text I mean, I'm not taking that as a comment on Zionism, Israel's homeland too, but the text is the classic Jewish homeland and every word is significant and understood in different ways. For several summers in a row, after I'd finished my first degree, I taught a course in speed reading skills at the Hebrew University because people have huge bibliographies in English and they had to be able to read lots of material at speed. And the more I taught that course, the more I thought it was important to read slowly. And my reading speed has slowed partly because I often read Talmud, Chumash, commentaries, partly because, especially for my last two books, they've been connected with 
the Holocaust. I've actually been going to footnotes, looking through the bibliography, making a, a little cross or putting one of those post-it notes in by, by a reference to an article, looking it up and finding myself absolutely gripped and drawn in ways that I don't fully understand. Tell us a little bit about your new book, your latest book, My Dear Ones is what it's called. And maybe just give us a bit of an insight without giving too much away. Yeah. My Dear Ones, with the, uh, with the continuing title, One Family and the Final Solution. It really began when my father's sisters died and soon after my father. And we cleared the flat that had belonged to the family in Jerusalem since the late 1930s. And I opened an old trunk which had been left on a balcony in Jerusalem. So many people keep things on their balconies. And I found in it a bundle of letters and I immediately saw these spanned from the late 30s to the late 40s and were letters between different members of the family. Now, my great-grandmother was left a widow in 1937 in Berlin and had six children. Of those six, four managed to get out of Germany, but she and two of her children and their families perished. And this correspondence goes between her and her children, the efforts to escape, where people found themselves stranded or saved. Some of the correspondence ends in a tragic manner. Some of it picks up later. And David Cesarani, a very close friend whom I deeply miss, said... There are many collections of letters, but few that comprehensive. You must write about this. So I used the letters to tell the narrative, the unfolding political narrative of the final solution through the experiences of different members of one family in different locations. But that one family, of course, is your family, and it family. must have been very difficult to read, surely. And then not, not least of all, then to start writing it all out again as well. It was... But I don't have before my eyes, like some members of the family who are alive today still do, the images of the people who perished. I'm second generation and I'm drawn, and I think I'm not alone, by a strange compulsion to know and to find out. So the, the desire to know was much stronger than any restraining element. And I think I did find things out which probably the family had not previously known. Such as? Dates of when things happened. Exactly, or not always exactly, but more or less how the destinies of family unfolded. I was able to sort of connect hints and references in different letters with each other and formulate a bit more of a sense of who had tried to do what and who had done what. And that's been very moving. I think also, in a way, it's a tribute to my father, who was... He was a great raconteur when you could get him started, but it was hard to get him started and there was much he did not talk about, including his early life in Germany. So he would hint at different names. I knew there was a Sophie, I knew there was a Trude, but I didn't know much about them. And they have come alive before me as I did this work. In fact, I've got a large pan of blackcurrants in the fridge. I'm going to bottle them because my father used to bottle fruit. And I realised he knew that from his mother and his aunt, who in one of the letters described bottling, preserving fruit and how that kept them going. So the memories are, they're memories of terrible things, but also very ordinary things that any family would identify with. I think to any Jew 
we all are maybe one, two steps removed from something someone associated with the Holocaust. But I think it's very easy for us to talk about and say how it must never happen again without actually having gone through it. And as you refer to yourself as second generation, but me, maybe third, fourth generation, whatever it is, do you think that it suddenly made it much more real to you going through all of this information, all of these letters about your ancestors? Did it suddenly make you feel almost as if you have been even more affected by it? I think so. It has brought it closer. And I've now spent eight years, likely to spend more, where my primary reading has been about the Holocaust. I also visited some of the different places where the family were initially deported to, as well as some of the camps where their lives ended. And I was in Ostrov Lubelski near Lublin a year ago with my son Mossi and with David, David Cesarani. And we wandered around this small town where thousands and thousands of Jews were dumped from cities like Poznan in the Wartegau. And he said, you know, it's true, you can make people disappear without a trace. And that, that, that's very real and it's very, it's very disturbing. But I also consciously wrote the book and I've made it clear in what I wrote on the cover of it and the introduction, not just about the past, but about the future, because the world is full of refugees desperately trying to escape war and violence, to give their children hope for the future, to cross borders that are blocked to them, to escape death. And this is a warning and a message for now as well, and for the universal human condition, as well as a narrative about what happened to my family and to our people in the past generations. That sounds really an incredible book and I absolutely can't wait to get my hands on a copy of one and also I'm sure there'll be others listening now who would also like to know how they can get their hands on a copy. Where do they go and what do they do? The book is published by William Collins. That's one source. Local bookshops first. Amazon as well. Excellent. Well, I'm sure that it will be a huge success, as is most of your other work. But I do have to ask, just finally, because I happen to know that you're such an exceptionally busy individual, I have to know where you find the time to write. Because it's amazing how many books you have actually managed to write and to get out there, but yet you always seem to be busy doing other things. It's a busy and full life, but I find the writing very helpful. It allows me to think over a length of time upon key themes and to process them, and it gives me some perspective, which I find invaluable. So I do manage to make the time. Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg talking to me there about his latest book, My Dear Ones, One Family and the Final Solution. If you would like to obtain a copy, then just search using your favourite search engine and it does indeed come up. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, think back to your school days, in particular, your primary school days. How was it for you? 
Did you make lots of friends and have they stuck with you for life? Or were you maybe a bit shy and retiring, a bit like me, and didn't know how to make friends? If you believe that, you'll believe anything. Well, Sinai Primary School has come up with a new scheme to help their pupils make friends with each other. The project is called Buddy Benches and it will be put into effect in the new term this coming September. To tell us more about it is Melanie Priestley. She's from the Sinai PSA and Kate Fulton has been talking to her. Kate started by asking Melanie just exactly what is a buddy bench. A buddy bench was the brainchild of a parent at the school, Sinai, and they came to the PSA and they wanted something to formalise a little bit more of an inclusive system during playtime because there's a lot of children who use the junior playground and the primary playground And we wanted to do something from the PSA that would be exciting and different and new and not only involve the children, but involve the parents as well and obviously the staff at Sinai. So a buddy bench is predominantly a bench for you to go and sit if you're feeling sad or alone and to try and help foster friendships, build new groups of children to kind of play together and it's highlighting to others in the playground that the children who've chosen to sit on the bench for five minutes or a couple of minutes or even longer that they're feeling sad or they're feeling alone and they they fancy having a friend in theory that does sound a fantastic idea my worry and help me out here could it not be the loser's chair you know, that, that you've got no friends, you know, it's kind of highlighting with, in all its technicolour glory, you ain't got no friends. How do you overcome that? There is absolutely a view that that could be possibly for what it is. However, with that, we are also involving a lot of the older children who are going to become buddy prefects. And the buddy prefects are going to be the ones who literally pick up the children who go near the bench and and help them feel happier and friendlier. And it's definitely not going to be like that. I think there will be a fight to sit on it because they are so beautiful and they're so colourful. Sina is a very caring and nurturing environment and we want to instil that in the children and also in the older children to have a responsibility. So we're trying to involve everyone that it's not a loner's bench. It's actually a bench that's going to make you friends and involve you more within playtime. You've got to be quite a brave kid to actually have that whole thought process. I'm feeling sad. You've got to sort of communicate the whole thing in your head. I'm feeling alone. I'd really like someone to come and play with me. Therefore, I will go and sit on the bench. I mean, won't they just be kind of hanging in the vicinity? Will someone scoop them up? if they're sort of near because we've got a recruiting system going back into in September 2016 at the start of school Mr Leach the headmaster and Mrs Lipshaw senior leadership team are all going to get onto board and build everyone's views in making this not a place that you don't want to sit on but a place you do want to sit on to try and help you get over the obstacles that they're feeling on that particular day. Is there something of very much of, of now, children feeling more left out? I mean, the old days, you know, kind of, were they more resilient kids? Were they, did they just kind of get on with it in the playground? Or do you think it was more of a cruel place? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, my memories of being a child is obviously quite some time ago, but I think I would have loved it. I think I would have absolutely loved to kind of let people know without letting people know without actually saying the words that I'm not feeling happy and the other thing as well is you're thinking of as a parent or an adult's point of view children have a totally different concept of feelings and 
whether they're sitting on a bench or not. And I think it's up to us as the parents and obviously the staff at Sinai to make them feel happy, you know, and not make it feel an ostracised place to go. It's all about involving the entire school and building a community spirit and making everyone realise that friends are important. Um, You said that the benches were beautiful, Tell me a bit about them. Who designed them? (laughs) We had a competition. The PSA put on a competition internally at school and we were looking for two buddy bench artists, designers. And we held a competition and we selected two people, Melissa Charles in year five and Liat Tilsiter from year two. And they came up with the most amazing ideas. Melissa Charles did a very, very multicolourful bench with rainbow patterns and gold stars and stickers and luminous coloured paint. And we translated that and varnished it. And it's in the playground going in for September. And Liat Tilsit's idea was very on trend. It's all about the emojis. So it had a variety of different emojis and faces and everything. Sad, happy, indifferent, angry. But it's fun, you know, it's highlighting to children that your emotions are there for a reason. And it's all about getting it across to others. It's all about communication. And I think that's why the Buddy Bench is so key for the school and the programme itself. Great. We'll see you in September then. (laughs) Playing there myself. (laughs) Yes, you can come and sit on the bench too, Kate. Melanie Priestley from the PSA of Sinai Primary School talking to Kate Fulton there about their new Buddy Benches project. And if you want to have a look at the winning entries, then you can always go to sinaischool.com and then towards the bottom of the homepage under the latest news, there you'll see it. Don't forget, coming up in just a moment, we'll have the Jewish Schmooze, but we now stream the Jewish Schmooze live via Facebook every Thursday evening. So if you want to watch the discussion unfold and more importantly, join in as it goes along, then do make sure you go to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views. That's every Thursday from 7pm and your comments could be on the show. Do make sure you get involved. And it's just yet another way that you can express your Jewish views with us. You can always email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today is journalist and author Emma Klein and a Hoover Cohen from the New End Theatre Beyond. The subject today is based on the news that the Palestinian Authority claims it will sue the British government for the 1917 Balfour Declaration. It says this made Britain responsible for what it called all Israeli crimes and the catastrophe which befell the Palestinian people. Clearly there are so many points to discuss about this story, not least of all reactions to it. Ahuva, let's start with you. As someone who is Israeli, how do you react to the PA's latest claim? Well, it's a very interesting turn of events. It's maybe there is some, not similarity, but in the same kind of idea that some of the MKs, the Israeli members of Knesset, are being threatened to be sued when they get into Britain for crimes of war. So I can see it in a very similar move. 
it is interesting there is probably it will be interesting to see if there is any jurisdictions basis to that legal basis to that it is though a fact that with the help of the British authorities, Israeli and then uh, a lot of uh, people from Europe were able to get to, to Israel and a lot of Arab land was taken from the Arabs, very similar to what is going on now in the territories. In fact, I've just come out from home and looked at the Arabs that there is a... Uh, condemnation from the Americans about the under-the-radar extraction of Arab lands in the territories. So, yes, it's a very interesting development. This is actually the, one of the things that Jeffrey Alderman was speaking about in the interview earlier in the program, when he said just that, more or less, and that, in fact, it does seem that, the, in a way, the Palestinians have a case. What do you think, Emma? Well, it's rather interesting. I suppose next year would be the centenary of the Balfour Declaration, but it seems strange. I don't know. Had it been 2017 and they were announcing this on the centenary, I would perhaps see the point. But otherwise, how come to wait so long? I mean, they've resisted this for a long time, but why this sudden sort of announcement? of suing Britain. I mean, they could have sued Britain in 1948 when Israel, you know... Because uh, for the very fact that you just mentioned, they probably just thought it's soon going to be 2017, yeah. so therefore yeah. let's not. <laughs> attack the Balfour Declaration now. I'd have thought it's a bit strange. I mean, obviously the territories have been going on since 1967, so it's nearly 50 years of the territories. The whole point is subsequently there have been occasional offers rejected by the Palestinians of a two-state solution. Not all Israelis would go for it by any means. The right-wingers would go bananas. But on the other hand, there have been governmental offers of two states and withdrawal from some of the territories. Well, that's exactly what Jeffrey Aldman was saying, that in really? fact, the Balfour Declaration always thought that the Palestinians certainly should have their own country, which is now occupied by Israel. But interestingly enough, I think the actual division, I think the Balfour Declaration possibly gave the territory to the Jews to the Jordan River, whereas after 1948, I think it was divided. You have to wonder what the motives are, though, at the moment, because I know that, I mean, we all know, what, 15, 20 years ago, the Palestinians were offered, what was it, 97% of what they're asking for? Of the West Bank. And it was accepted by Yasser Arafat, and then he reneged on his on, on that, and he, he, he was decided scared, not though, to wasn't take he? it. He was scared by, because of the... Extremists. The, the extremists. But surely that's what they're asking for. So why would you be scared of something that, that apparently, according to this, this is what they're asking for? So what, I don't quite understand why you'd be scared of extremists. What, because extremists want Israel wiped off the face well, of, of the earth? Well, no, I think they're actually saying that they're suing the British government because the Balfour Declaration should never have happened and that it should all now be Palestine. I think that's what they're saying. But the Balfour Declaration was never a legally binding document. It was a letter. It was a letter. That's all it was. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's really a legal case there. And as we heard in the in the interview earlier, a lot of the Jews who were involved in the, in it were actually very much against the fact of the Jews having a homeland there. Interestingly, in this week's Jewish news, in in the editorial, it says about how 
if Mahmoud Abbas was so bothered about, as he put, the crimes committed on Palestinian land, then why isn't he suing the Egyptians, the Romans, the Byzantines? You know, it's it's very selective what's being talked about. But here. I suppose to be oh, fair to very him, very good point. Very I good think point. to be fair to him, the Egyptians and the Romans were a very long time ago. Quite yeah. is a hundred years not no, a long time but, ago. But Who's I mean, around from then? I mean, they would probably have wanted the Sinai Peninsula as well. But Egypt had the, took the Sinai Peninsula, and then Israel finally returned it to Egypt. But I mean, if it was considered Palestinian land, it was Egypt who took it. Well, Emma, you said it was returned to the Egyptian. It was theirs. It was a war, and the war has to be settled in a peace agreement, and that was the peace agreement. And since then, the relationship between Egypt, I mean, they had ups and downs, but on the whole, on the whole, it was a very quiet border. So there is is value in these. And about the attempts to have agreements with the Palestinians, if one leader wasn't so honest and didn't go through it, Israel should persist because this is the aim to save the nation, not only of, if you like, the material, the territorial no, the area, demographic, uh, but, the demographic. but also, also the soul of the nation has been eroded with the process, with the occupation. I don't believe in the occupation. I believe in the two-state solution. Even Bibi now apparently has been offering two-state solution, which is I think most of us do believe in the two-state solution. Surely that is the answer, a two-state solution. Absolutely. Fairness to both sides. Definitely, but unfortunately, when it has been offered, even Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, has rejected it. That's the problem. But I mean, also, also because, with great respect, some of the Israelis have behaved not particularly oh, well towards the I couldn't the, agree the more with you, absolutely. Some of the Israelis have been appalling. Absolutely. And I come back to the land which is continued to be taken from Palestinians illegally under the radar And this is what makes the continued dialogue very, very difficult. America is just, as I said, I just came from home and and, and there is an appalling condemnation from the Americans about what's going on. We are all agreed about this, in fact. Is it going to happen? Because it nearly did happen, as we've already mentioned, at the time of, of Yasser Arafat, who accepted this and then changed his mind. So is this going to always be the case? Is there always going to be the two sides looking at each other and hating each other? I believe that, that there will come a signing of a peace agreement. It will be piecemeal and it will do- be done. Netanyahu has been far too long on the throne. <laughs> and I think a change of regime, even a, another sort of right-wing uh, Likud leader could change. It was, after all, Begin who brought well, about a peace treaty yeah. and no one expected it. And it did happen. So you never know which side of the divide it will come from the right or from the left, but it has to come. But what you're really saying is that Netanyahu will never bring it. I don't think he will bring it because he's now involved in other in personal issues, which there are 
issues to sue him. For instance, the parents of fallen soldiers in Tsuketan, the action that was taken two years ago in the Gaza with the tunnels, have accused him, as well as a member of his own coalition, of being a liar about what happened in, in this... But in, uh, in fairness uh, to so him... He's got, so he's got internal issues to worry about at the moment, and I don't think that he will be able to, to do anything externally. Now, I certainly don't agree with everything Netanyahu does, and I actually think he can cause some pretty bad propaganda for Israel and ultimately for Jews around the world. Mm. But in fairness to him... We need strong leadership in Israel at the moment. We need someone who is not going to take any messing around, who actually is going to lead us into some kind of solution rather than just acquiescing to what people... You know, my worry is that we get some more liberal leader in Israel and that we just sort of, oh, OK, we'll be just for the sake of peace. Because call me cynical, but I don't actually see it as a two-state solution. I see it as a two-state interim. Because mm -hmm. I don't believe that's the solution. I do not believe that if the borders were drawn up for two states, I do not believe there will be peace. I'd love to think there is. But I can't see that because I don't think that's what many Palestinian leaders want. It's a very easy thing to say. But in the reality of it, I don't think they want Israel there. Full stop. That's a fair point. And also, there has to be coexistence. I probably said this before, maybe even on the schmooze. But... My sister lives on the West Bank. I adore her, but I don't agree with her Israeli politics. However, they have very good relations with some Arabs around the area. They had Arab builders and did something to their place in the West Bank. And when there was something that had to be done to a family place in Israel, in, in Ramat Gan near, near Tel Aviv, they brought the same Arab builders there to do the work because they knew they were decent people, good people. And I think... Decent coexistence is a problem, but if there was more of that, you know, that might help matters. But the coexistence between the people of the nations, the Palestinians and, and the Israelis, I think that's less of a problem than coexistence between the leaders. No, I, no, fair point, I genuinely fair believe a lot of the Palestinians want coexistence. I certainly know a lot of the Israelis most want yeah. coexistence. But this is being fought at a much higher yeah, level than, fair, than ground level. Yeah, fair point. That's a very fair point. But I want to bring up some other aspect of this because... There's another side to it. Why, one asks, why are the Palestinians threatening to sue the British, British. government? <laughs> it was never actually passed, as we've heard, by the British government. It was purely a matter, a letter, if you like, a declaration. A recommendation. A recommendation. And is, is it even possible to launch a legal case after so long? Well, I wouldn't have thought so. Quite. So know. what's the point? Why even bring this up now? Well, exactly. So why, this is what I'm asking. Yeah, no, I agree. Why, 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 why are they doing this? I think the reason is to bring it to the consciousness of the contemporary people because not many of the audiences in the world who know about the Arab-Israeli conflict are aware of all the history of it and the involvement of the British government in it. And this is my view of the reason. And secondly, one has to examine whether international law has changed where this could be put onto the table as a claim. In the discussion earlier, the interview earlier, it was said that the 
British government, well, not the British government, that the Balfour mm. was what we call today a born-again Christian. And that's the whole reason why he brought it about. And that's another discussion altogether, so we won't go into it now. And then, Fred, we're going to have to leave you because time is up. My thanks to our guests, journalist and author Emma Klein and Ahuva Cohen from the New End Theatre Beyond. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at Jewish. Jewish Views UK. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And we heard about his new book a little earlier on. Therefore, it's only right that it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Masorti Synagogue. We're living in frightening and violent times. And I find myself asking the question, what's the value in pondering the meaning of destruction? In the Jewish year, we've entered the three weeks now the weeks which begin with the fast of the 17th of Tammuz, when among the five disasters recorded, the walls of the city of Jerusalem were breached, probably in the Babylonian invasion in the 6th century BCE. And those three weeks go until the 9th of Av, which commemorates the destruction of both temples and expulsions and crusades and disasters in Europe. And I ask myself, why ponder the meaning of the destruction of cities? And yet, we live in a world where cities, Nice, Munich, Paris, where areas are indeed being destroyed in horrible attacks that frighten us. It is part of our reality. And if we don't ask ourselves questions about the meaning of destruction, why do people do it? How can we secure and make safe our lives without resorting to prejudice or punitive measures that rob us of our freedom? How can we maintain our faith in life's worth and beauty and grace and creativity in the presence of a world that has got this capacity to be destructive? If we don't ask those questions, then we can't find a path through to a safer future. So the value of these three weeks and the fast of the ninth of Av, which is now not far away and which looms with a disturbing and I find sometimes frightening presence. Its purpose is to make one think, how can I maintain hope? How can I be creative? How can I continue to love life in a world that has so much capacity to destroy? And how can we limit that and bring our capacity to create as human beings in God's image to the fore? Thank you to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Mazorti Synagogue. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Professor Jeffrey Alderman, Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg, Melanie Priestley. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Ahuva Cohen and Emma Klein. And of course, you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the Studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.